Welcome to Cardboard in the Classroom. We're a podcast about using board games in the classroom to bridge a student's understanding and engagement with the purpose to richen their learning experience. This episode is brought to you by the great people at Gamesurplus.com, where you can find the current hits, the classics, and hard-to-find titles. Let Carmen and Elaine find your games and receive free shipping for all contiguous U.S. shipping orders over $120. Gamesurplus.com. Great people, great selection, and great prices. And in Canada, amazing stories in Saskatoon. If you're in the Saskatoon area, come by the store for Friday night games and play and receive 20% off your purchase of any board games in the store. Amazing Stories is winner of the Joe Schuster Award for Best Comic Retailer in Canada and nominated in 2016 for the U.S. Eisner Spirit of Comics Retailer Award presented at Comic-Con. Hey there, this is episode two of Cardboard in the Classroom. I'm your host, Norm, and on today's episode, we're going to discuss the relationship between instructional design and board game design, and we have a special guest. Please stay tuned. What is a cardboard cohort? Well, cardboard cohorts are board gamers banded together who support and inspire one another and become colleagues and friends in the board gaming community. And with that being said, we would like to support the good, the bored, and the ugly. They have a podcast on iTunes, and they record weekly live stream YouTube content. So please check them out. Welcome back. Cardboard in the Classroom, Episode 2. The relationship between instructional design and board game design. And I am so fired up to have on this podcast a teacher and board game designer, Sen. Hey there, Norm. How are you? Good, good. Well, let's uh, get this going. And uh, we've taken care of that first part is, uh, is you know, to introduce yourself. But um, give us a bit of a bigger picture of uh, who you are by where you teach, what grade levels you teach, courses, so that we have a context. Okay. Um, hi, my name is Sen. I'm a college professor. I teach psychology and other subjects at Fanshawe College in London, Ontario, uh, which is in southwestern Ontario which is part of Canada. Um, <laughs> and I teach uh, in a program uh, for developmental service workers primarily. So I primarily primarily teach students who become educational assistants in the classroom, who become um, care providers and support personnel in the community at places like Participation House, Community Care, uh, Living, those type of situations where uh, adults with developmental disabilities are living as independently as possible in the community, all sorts of stuff like that. So that's where I teach. I I want to, this is unexpected. I want to tip my hat to you and to all the people that you train because I have a 13-year-old son who has Down syndrome. And if it was not for the amazing efforts by those individuals that support his uh, development and his learning, um, I don't know. I don't know what would happen. So, kudos. Um, my, I'm so impressed. Well, thank, thank you very you. much for what you do. Yeah, thank you for what you do, sir. <laughs> um, all right. So we've got the background as an educator. Let's. Uh, um, I, I used the expression before. Let's have this Venn diagram and see where it, where it uh, where it folds on itself. Give us, uh, if you could, give us a, a game history, game design history, when you, like your first ones or your first step into it, and then 
good progressions. Like hit the milestones uh, if you let's want. See if I, let's see if I can get them all. I don't know if I can get them all. But, um, we first started designing way back when uh, my son was just under two. And I know that because we had flown out to Vancouver to see Jay, uh, my best friend and game design partner, uh, who moved out to Vancouver to pursue his career basically and because ethan was an extra piece of um, human that we needed to take with us <laughs> uh, we flew as late as we could uh so that he was old as he could be when he would meet uncle jay uh but that he was also as young as he could be to still get free so a free <laughs> flight so he was just under two uh, and that was 14 years ago um, no, th 12 years ago, I guess, really, because he's 14 now. So it was about 12, 13 years ago almost when we really first started to seriously think about game design. I mean, before that, we played tons of games and we had tried to make a game, but it stunk. So we put it, <laughs> we put it away on the shelf as first games normally do stink. Mm -hmm. um, that's just a note for all you aspiring game designers out there. Your first game probably won't be one that you, you know, end up selling, but it will be uh, one that is pivotal in your career as it defines the rest of it. And it's funny that we're defined by failure, but that's okay. I think that's a good thing to be defined by. Future um, successes. Yeah, exactly. That's all failures are. Failures become future successes, right? Um, you have to have a growth mindset, right? Yeah. Um, so the first game that we designed, well, okay, that's, that's a lie. Uh, but the first <laughs> game that was published, uh, was actually the second game that we signed. Um, and the first game we signed was Belfort. So Belfort is really our flagship game in terms of it was the first out of the gate. It is still one of our highest rated games, I believe, if not still the highest rated game on places like BGG and whatnot. Uh, in fact, that we're getting a reprint in a couple of days. We'll, we'll be live with uh, Kickstarter in early October to reprint Belfort through Tasty Menstrual Games. It'll be the 10th anniversary edition of that. Not our 10th anniversary, but Tasty Menstrual Games 10th anniversary because it's probably seven or eight years uh, for Belfort. And Belfort has gone through many, many, many print runs, but it's currently out of print. So now's as good a time as any to reprint that. So that was really our first big splash into board gaming. Uh, but it was actually preceded by, but wait, uh, not but wait, there's more, but by um, Train of Thought, which Chasey Minstrel Games also did. They were looking for smaller games, lighter games, and considering even party games. And so Train of Thought is a party game. And because it was so fast to produce, it's just cards and a die and some timers um, or a timer. And that game came out earlier than Belfort, even though it was... Um, signed later. Mm -hmm. From then, we made a whole bunch of games, and I'm not going to get this correctly in chronological order, but we did games like Tortuga, we did um, But Wait, There's More, which I already mentioned. Mm -hmm. We did yeah, This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Two to Four of Us, which is a really small 24 card uh, micro game thingy that Taste Your Minstrel did. Uh, we did, oh, if you like theater, uh, did your theater background, you should definitely try, but wait, there's more. Okay. You can get, you can get your internal uh, Ron Popeil on 
salesman going. Uh, it's a really good game for that. And if you do teach trauma, actually, I don't know what you teach, but if you do teach some trauma, it's a really good tool for that. Um, what else do we do? We did um, Junkart. Oh, yeah, Junkart, that thing. Uh, Junkart, the game that is probably our bestseller unit-wise, maybe? I don't know. And probably heaviest if it's the wood edition? Yeah, the, the wood edition is super heavy, but super nice. Uh, then we started getting a lot of work in intellectual properties. And so we've done work with Dungeons & Dragons, Rock, Paper, Wizards, which was uh, yep. a real hoot to actually be a part of the Dungeons & Dragons world. Uh, that's great. We did a game card game for Orphan Black, which was nice because that shot, you know, just down the street from me in Scarborough. And then we did a game for The Godfather, the movie. It came out before Eric Lang's Godfather. Uh, another Canadian doing Godfather. Very, very interesting. And then we did some other work for other companies. So I do development work for WizKids and uh, for everything epic. So I've, I've done games like Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, I wasn't the designer, but I was the developer on that. Metal Dawn, uh, Who Should We Eat? Uh, so lots of different games have my cool. fingerprints on them, even though my name's not on the box necessarily. And uh, then I work with another friend of mine, Jesse Wright, and we did the Legend of Korra uh, Pro Bending Arena game. And we have a whole whole whack of other games coming out under different properties. Uh, and Jay and I just got back into designing stuff together, and we've got this amazing escape room in a box game coming out. Um, I don't know when, but we're just finishing it right now. So fantastic! It should come out soon because Jay had kids, and when he had he had kids <laughs> late in life, and so um, and he had twins, so oh. he, was, he was blessed slash cursed all at the same time with having kids uh, late in life and all at once. And so he's sort of been out of the loop for a little while. So we're just really getting back into designing a new thing as opposed to curating and pruning the garden that is all our old games. That's and then good. there's a bunch of other games that I just can't remember them, but they're there. Well, they're, oh, they're... yeah. Like, uh, I just sent you a bunch of them, actually. Uh, I sent oh, That's them right. Thank you very to, much, by the way. Um, uh, rock, not Rock Rivers, sorry. Um, uh tic tac moo tic tac moo is a game that i sent you guys a two-player game oh two-player games i should say akrotiri <laughs> i was waiting of, for that one yeah. that's my favorite i know that's our favorite game too uh, that's one of the that's why i said you know don't hate your first game because akrotiri is based on our first game it's not the exact mechanics that we used in the first game that we ever made that was a piece of poop but it is the uh spiritual successor let's say uh, and I also sent you uh, Dijin, which is a trick-taking guard game that we made. And it's actually super, super cool. Um, it's a trick-taking game where your tricks matter after. Not just oh, when nice. you take them, but the trick that you take matters um, later in the game because you're trying to collect stuff out of those tricks to make sets that allow you to win the game. Oh, okay, I'm, I've, I just went on a tangent. So I'm, I'm just like, oh, I could just see how this could be deep. Yeah, it's not, it's not necessarily super deep, but it's, it's actually really interesting. Well, at least, it, I mean, I like it when there's interesting decisions. It doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily have to be deep, but just an interesting decision to make. Yeah. Um, and then we've made some games with Mercury Games, a Canadian company. Um, so Zombie Slam, which is this sort of quick reaction game that has this app that runs and 
tells you where the zombies are and where they're coming from. Uh, so that's pretty fun as well. So yeah, I, I think there's there's more and there's definitely more to come. There's already a ton of games. I'm just looking at my desk saying, oh yeah, can't talk about that one, can't talk yeah. about that one. But one that I can talk about. Um, For sure. Uh, oh, actually, I can talk about two of them. Uh, another Kickstarter coming up at the end of October uh, will be for Mutants, which is a card game. Um, so it's a deck building card game and it's it's really quite interesting. It has this mechanic where you when you each card has a deployability and well, most cards have a deployability and a leave ability. So mm-hmm. as you're pushing your cards through this sort of tiered system, you get to play it for its deployability. And when it leaves the arena, it's an arena combat thing. When it leaves the arena, it also does a combination power. So there's Ooh. all these neat kind of linkages as playing something, watching it pop out. It comes out, it does its thing. And you got to plan for that um, strategically, but then tactically respond to things that your opponents do in the arena. Uh, so that's a fun one that's coming out October 30th. Amazing art uh, through Lucky Duck Games. So it was an app and we did a game that is I wouldn't it's not a simulation of the app at all that's not what Lucky Duck wants it's a interpretation yeah interpretation captures some of the experience in a different way and then uh, a game that's coming out to Kickstarter probably first quarter of 2019 will be Mind Management uh, which is a game by Jay and myself um, that is super interesting it is a hidden movement game um and it's it's really cool so you'll have to you have to see it to believe it it's it's that's how neat it is it's based on a comic book uh by my friend uh and jay's friend best-selling new york times author matt kint uh it's his comic series called dark uh from dark horse called my management i'm gonna have to do some research because this uh, hidden movement you you just basically opened up my wallet there you go (laughs) it's being published by our good friend daryl andrews who is just down the street in kitchener waterloo so another great Canadian designer, um, and he is starting a publishing house called Maple Games. So very, very Canadian. And our game will be like, I think, the third or fourth game that they're doing. So oh, super cool. wonderful. Yeah. Well, let's let's uh, transition right into our, our topic, which is the relationship between instructional design and game design. And yeah. the first, well, the topic, huh? what, what strikes you about the topic? Because, I mean... We're teachers, once we, you know, see a, a statement or a theme, our brains kick into into all the possibilities. So what yeah. did you see? What did you hear? Well, I really liked the idea of having a model. <laughs> um, as a psychology professor, you know, theories and models and, and things like that are very practical to me. And I we use them all the time to look through the lens of model A or theory B when we're looking at, um, you know, human behavior and developmental. Uh, So it's really interesting to see that applied to not just instructional design, but how would we take this process and say, use it to make a game? Can we use this process to make a game? Because there isn't as defined a process. It's it's more like this witch's brew. uh, And we stir the cauldron and something comes out. So... I'd like to see can we can we proceduralize game design and I think I know we can I know there's parts that are yeah. um, but does this lens of the instructional design process uh, the Addy model 
of an analyze, design, develop, implement, evaluate, does that coincide or correlate to how we take things to the tabletop in any way, shape, or form? And the answer is yes, it does. And we should probably go through the five steps and see how. Well, I, I was just, you kind of hit the, uh, the, the, the design process that I pulled up for both of us. And uh, yeah, the Addy um, instructional design process. And you, you said like analyze and they, in the sub uh, categories of that is, you know, identify and understand your learners, um, try to create broad goals in that uh, analysis process and then design um, what are the specific skills you want your students to have? What knowledge do you want them to have? And I can, I can, as I'm going through this, I'm trying to see it through you as a game designer and just remove the word students and have, you know, players or board gamers, right? Um, And the second part of the design is the outcomes. Like, how will you know that the students learned and to what degree they learned? Uh, The develop side is what are you going to, how are you going to facilitate the learning involved? Right. Uh, then there's lo- logistics as part of the uh, development process. I mean, um, I teach high school, so classroom size um, impacts your your development uh, choices. Um, the resources that you have impact um, your development process. And then the last two are implement, um, which is obviously try it out in class, see if it, you know, see mm-hmm. if it has a, see if it has legs. And then the last part, as in every design process. Um, even the furniture designers, you evaluate how successful were you at this design. Um, and uh, much like we hear about game designers and playtesting is what fixes need to be made before that design goes back to the beginning of this whole process again. So analyze, design, develop, implement, evaluate. Yep. So from a game designer, what, uh, like you said, there's looking through the lens of this process, is this a, a suitable structure to start off with? Oh yeah, I, I really do think so. Like if you take out lesson plan and turn that into game, and if you turn uh, learners into you know, players or participants, you're gonna have roughly the same five steps. We just don't necessarily call it those same five mm-hmm. steps. Um, but I think any good design process has to be a couple things. So. Um, this is how I, I define game design. I define game design as an emergent and iterative process, right? So emergent in the fact that it's not just what I want. And I learned this very early on as a teacher, um, that it's not just what I want to teach. It's what the students are willing and able to learn because uh, uh, I teach at the college level. So I have all these highfalutin ideas about what students can learn, um, what they can learn, what they need to learn and what they will learn. That's a Venn diagram in and of itself. right? <laughs> um, and we have college mandated learning outcomes. So we, we have objectives and learning outcomes handed down to us from a greater body, from the Ministry of uh, College and Learning and whatever, right? So in Ontario, we have to meet those needs first and foremost. And how we do it, that is the big million dollar question and you know why we get paid the big bucks, we don't. But you know what I mean? Uh, that without that design, that intelligent design of curricula, um, you're not going to get as good of an educational process 
as you will if you have some thought put behind it. Mm -hmm. um, and so early on, I learned that I would rather have my students learn anything and something versus nothing. Yeah. And good design, good instructional design is the difference between learning something and learning nothing. Uh, because just like with a good game, and you've seen it before when people disengage from your game and they lean back and they have their phone out. I mean, I can definitely tell when students do that as well. And I'm not saying that all students all the time are engaged in my lessons because that would be a lie. My class sizes are huge too. I teach class sizes of like 150. So um, I don't teach them all at once. I have sections, but there are yeah. sections of like 50 students each, uh, which is around one and a half to double the size of most um, most most uh, primary school and even some secondary school classes. So that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Yeah. So you're looking at a bigger class with students who um, ostensibly want to be there, and that's kind of the difference that we get um, because college isn't mandated. You don't have to be in college. Um, these are people who thought they wanted to do a profession, came to college to learn about that profession. And so we have a lot of really engaged people, but we have some people who aren't so engaged. And my goal, unfortunately, um, as with most teachers, we have this unfortunate place where, you know, we're always caught teaching to the middle. <laughs> we're always caught, you know, I'm going to catch the, you know, the 90, you know, the 96 odd percent and there's going to be 2% at each end of the, the, you know, the bell curve, unfortunately, because that's, you know, it's, it's, it's not a truism, but it's a truism. Human uh, nature. Yeah, that there is unfortunately going to be those, you know, people who sit two standard deviations away from the norm. Some of them are going to lose it. Uh, they're going to lose the plot, but they're losing it for two very different reasons. One of them is losing it because they don't get it. They're not challenged by it. Uh, um, and those are the two reasons. One of them is not challenged. Yeah. And so their skill level is too high. And the other person is losing it because their skill level is too low and they're being over challenged. And so they get anxious and they disengage or they can't keep up. And I mean, this goes right back to, you know, my area of study, uh, Michaela Chismihai and flow is a big part of how I design games, but it's also very, very relevant in classroom um, modification, uh, classroom behavior and management, as well as instructional design, where you're trying to keep everybody within that flow channel uh, where the challenge is equal to the skill of the people so that as they get more skilled, they get some more challenge and that you can pull some things back. Um, and I guess one of the things that is harder in both instructional design and in tabletop game design would be the lofty, lofty goal of differentiated instruction. Um, so for those of you who aren't teachers out there, and you might be listening to this for the game side of things, uh, differentiated instruction is basically teaching to the individual's level, uh, skills, likes, strengths, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's kind of a, the layman's exp explanation for that. There's a little more to it, but that kind of covers it. Yeah, um, you hit it. Yeah, and so we can't be all things to all people. Uh, that is somewhat of the issue, uh, both in games and in instructional design. And are we good enough being something to 96.8% of the classroom or the players? 
and good instructional design can get us there. Good instructional design can get us to where we are meeting even more of the people and good design of games can get us to where we're accessible to even more of the people as well. Um, but, you know, if we start this process off with analyze. Um, so in the instructional design process, the ADI process, analyze states, you know, take a look at your learners and gather as much information on them as you can. So even though you think you can't do that with the game design process, you really can. Um, and really what you're looking for here is what types of players would like to play this game? And when we design a game, we design with a player uh, psychograph in mind. So if you don't know what psychographics are, uh, Google psychographics and Magic the Gathering, and you'll see <laughs> that there are three main ones and a bunch of sub ones. I think there's like six in total now um, of player types that play Magic the Gathering. And you'll find that those types kind of do extend across all games, um, just like you can take a, take a bunch of learners who you've never met before, and you can say, okay, there's some here because they want to be here. There's some here because their mom told them to be here. There's some told some here because they think it will be a good career, but they don't know yet. Uh, there are some here who are exploring. There are some here who just have to be somewhere. And then even within those, there's different motivations. There's some here who have a scholarship and need a good mark to maintain it. There's some here that are going to check out halfway during the semester because of mental health issues. And we just know some of them do. We don't know which ones, but some of them will. Uh, there's some here who have uh, no income and are living a hand-to-mouth existence outside of the school. There are some here who are disabled and we don't, we can't see it because it's an invisible disability. And so all those learners go into this big pot and we stir it around and we try to figure out not only their learning goals, but from their learning styles, how we can then design something for them. And for games, it's the same way. Um, you'll have an easier time with games in a way, I think, because you kind of do the, if you like X, you'll like Y scenario. and you kind of tailor your games to those types of players, and then you test your games with those types of players. And while this is a little bit of confirmation bias, it's also in some ways good design because you are saying, you are my target audience. Do you like this game? If so, great, we've just hit the nail on the head. Uh, the next step of analysis in instructional design talks about broad goals. And we do that as well in game design where we're saying, hey, what is the main thrust of this game? What is the interesting hook? What do we hope players get out of it? In fact, my metric, um, I use really weird broad metrics because I teach behavioral psychology a lot. And one of the things I look for is how do people behave when they play the game? What are they saying after the game? What are they saying between turns, between the games? Uh, what are they saying after the game is just finished and before the game starts? I look for that kind of behavioral stuff, and those become my metrics as opposed to, you know, what did people score? Yeah. That, that's not as important to me. Uh, and I think that feedback really works as well in terms for instructional design. There are going to be some people who score amazing in your classes, and they just always kind of do. Uh, but that's not really a good test of your instructional design, <laughs> is it? Because those people are the top end of the scale, and they are going to score well in any class that they're in, whether they like it or not. Um, and like I said, we do teach to the middle often. 
and we do want to capture that. But we want to take that, really, my goal for anything is to take that, the median of the bell curve um, and raise it just a little bit um, so that everybody is kind of one step better than they were last time. Not a whole standard deviation. That's a lot of marks, but a little bit better than they were the last time they took Improvement. Class. Yeah, that constant um, improvement thing is a good idea. Um, then we go on to the D part of it, I guess. Yep. Uh, design, which is the actual making of the thing. Um, and this is usually the longest part. Um, in, but it's in the head, right? So a lot of this yeah. is done in my head or on tables or paper or on a computer and not really shown to anybody. Um, and that's the problem. Uh, you want to show things to people as soon as you can. With learning plans and instructional design stuff, I tend to be able to show that to other experts in the curriculum field that I'm studying or teaching and say, hey, what do you think of that? Do you think students would get something out of this? Um, and so the specific skills and knowledge that they're wishing, that we want them to obtain, um, the actual literal learning out outcome that we're writing up. Uh, we call them, well, there's different things. So there's VLOs, which are vocational learning outcomes. And there's ESS, which are essential skills um, for that particular performance area. And we identify those and we write them down and then we link them to assessment methods. Uh, and how we will assess, uh, could be anything, could be, um, you know, a portfolio could yeah. be a single assessment, could be a exit test, could be a cumulative test, whatever it is, uh, we design and then we say, okay, how are we going to know that we did our job? And that comes through assessing learning. In the game world, uh, you know, how will we assess whether or not we design something well? I guess that's going to be what our BG rating is. In some ways, it is. But uh, there's before... a whole lot of people that are twitching about uh, the BGG rating. <laughs> yeah, and it's a decent metric, but again, you have to know who you have to analyze the players. Yeah. Who is going to actually spend the time to rate a game? Not everybody. Like not a, not a hundred percent of gamers. Definitely. It's a smaller subset than you'd think. So um, I don't know, Norm, do you think I'm a big game nerd? Um, I would say just looking over your shoulder and seeing boxes of stacked games with shrink wrap on them still. Yes, I could yes. probably confirm that. Do you think that I rate every game that I've played? Not a chance because I, 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 I maybe, I maybe 15%. Yeah, I just, I'd, I just I'd rather play. Yeah, I just don't have time. And it's a little bit of a, a sticky subject as being a designer and rating other people's games. So on that note, I don't do it. Uh, and even when I did do it, I didn't really like to do it. But I thought, oh, you know what? I'm supplying data to the data, data gods. You know, I'm sacrificing information for the betterment of humankind. <laughs> and in the end, uh, does it do that? I don't know. I think the, the hotness is this weird thing. And the rating system is a weird thing where only the highest things continually show up and get rated. Uh, and so you see this paucity of data at one end, and you see this overabundance of data at another end that really skews things. And so if you want to get into statistical analysis, they're doing a Bayesian uh, statistics analysis method. 
Um, but there's some faults with that uh, that we don't need to go into on this show. No, no. Uh, but if you ever want to have a talk about that, it'd be <laughs> well, interesting. When you're talking about assessing the learning um, part, th- would that be necessarily the playtesting? Yeah. 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 Uh, and so I think in the design of the Addy process, um, it's it's a little bit not backwards, but we do have, we have to do a little more testing, I guess, in game design um, because it's a packaged product that until you know the advent of the internet really didn't have the opportunity for a do-over. Whereas yeah. I, if you're like me, Norm, uh, every semester you're tinkering with the same oh. courses that you've tinkered with for the last 10 years, yeah. even though you know how to teach it like the back of your hand. You're like, it's just not good enough. I'm not getting that those two students. I'm not hitting yeah. that everybody. How can I hit everybody? As you keep trying to tinker, um, and usually it makes the thing better, which is great. Or you come up with, you know, you went to a seminar and you went to a seminar or a PD event that was about using clickers or something. And you yeah. say, oh man, that would make my classroom so engaging. Let's do that. And so you add and change. We don't have necessarily that luxury in game design. So I think we have to spend more time on evaluation. So the stuff you're talking about is that evaluation process, but I would stick that earlier on in the design process. I think it's essential, excuse me, to design. Uh, when I said that game design is um, em- it's emergent and iterative, that's that iterative part that I'm talking about. And yeah. the emergence as well, uh, because it never beca- it never is exactly like what I think it is in my head. I have well, all and, these great ideas in my yeah. head, but it's, they, like, it's like uh, I think Patton said, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Exactly. Because same thing. For my for my uh, you know lessons where I think about a unit or a lesson and I think oh this is gold and then I'll I'll teach it and it'll be a good lesson but then when I ask for feedback I will get feedback related to uh, perspectives that I had not even considered right because we're egocentric right yeah we we still and I'm I'm appreciative of it too of course we have to be open to that and that's probably the biggest skill you can have as a game designer is the ability to take feedback uh, without taking it personally, right? Because it's not about you and it's not about you even as a teacher. It's actually just about that class or that course. And or it's like, the oh. students, yeah. And it's it, it really isn't about you at all. It's about the students. Yeah. Um, I came to this realization once. I said, you know what? My job actually isn't done until a student understands the thing I'm supposed to be teaching them. And if they aren't, that's kind of on me and kind of yeah. on the lesson as well. And so I used to get I used to get angry when I was a young teacher. Uh, I used to get kind of angry when students wouldn't understand stuff because it'd be like, oh, I spent so much time thinking about how to make this so accessible to everybody that can't possibly be wrong, right? Yeah. And it's interesting um, even just to reflect on this and think about that. Uh, by the way, uh, teaching is a hugely reflective process. And so is game design. If you aren't reflecting as a designer or a teacher, y'all are doing something wrong. So get or you're started. in the wrong profession. Yeah, you need to reflect and be humble and understand that you can mis- make mistakes, and that mis- those mistakes actually have a big effect. Here, um, here's a, before you continue, yeah. here's a question that I have um, as a teacher. I, my one of my goals. I mean, once I've done my work and I've created this lesson and I've created the content. 
I start to think that my job as a teacher is now not to get in the way of the learning. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great. A because I've done, do I've it. done my job. I've done my due diligence to the instructional design that, that now I'm, I'm not teaching, I'm facilitating and I have to allow the students the, the, the time to absorb and process and synthesize the information and not, you know, not be beside them going, okay, come on, you should have this by now. Let's move on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, that looks like the develop part of the Addy model where you have facilitation logistics, right? So your lesson plan uh, is technically separate than your strategies of how you're going to implement that plan and how you will facilitate students learning as the, the process describes. Um, in game design, we don't really have that so much. We have a rule book. Um, there is actually a whole lot of stuff that you can do to do that, though. How mm -hmm. do you facilitate a player learning the rules and playing the game better? Um, good UX will do that. So yeah. a combination of graphic design, uh, text rules, um, how you lay out the board and the rules and the cards can all facilitate a person's experience. Uh, actually, um, if you want to hear a bit about that in a couple weeks, I think we're going to have the Finches, Kate Finch, and maybe Joel join us on Meeple Syrup Show, which is a show that I talk about game design on. And they're going to join us, and they are two UX designers who are also game designers from Brisbane, Australia. So that'll be really interesting, uh, seeing design through the eyes of a UX professional uh, user experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's kind of cool. Uh, the logistics stage in... Um, the instructional design process. Oh, before that, we jump back. Um, well, let's jump back to design process. For, here. Sure, it says, for sure. Identify the outcomes and how will you know. I just want to stick in a little note here uh, for all the teaching professionals listening is test early and test often. Um, <laughs> your students, test them. Like assess, assess, assess. Yeah. Um, in college, it's different, right? Because we have students that expect we're going to have a midterm that's worth 40%. A final project that's worth 10% and a cumulative exam that's worth 50%. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're going to have 1% a day little assignments to do. And I'm testing you every second week. And those tests are worth 9% each. And you're going to have a very big group project that's, you know, 20% of your mark or something like that, right? Yeah. Test early, test often, and test in various ways. Uh, so not everything is going to be a multiple choice test because they suck. Uh, sometimes that's the only way you can get yeah. things done. I, uh, test, uh, evaluate, assess learning. I think that's a better way. Yeah. Um, it's not just testing, it's assessing learning. So how can you assess learning? Give people marks when they show you that they've done some learning. Like um, I do exit uh, for a three hour class, I'll just do an exit, um, exit at the end. Yeah. yeah, at the end. It's your little ticket. Now you can leave. Um, did you learn something from this class? Write something down. And then I use those not only just to give them some marks on a daily basis, but then to evaluate their learning and yeah. uh, go back to step five and then say, okay, next week, I see that everybody got this section you know, not quite the way I'd like you to. So we're going to revisit that for the first five minutes of class. So the bridging in will be um, a review. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and well, that's and okay. you can you can determine where where the learning kind of went into the weeds and mm -hmm. and correct it. Yeah, 
Yeah, and so we can do that with game design as well. So test early, test often with game design. The first test should be getting the game out of your head onto the table as fast as you can and test it with yourself. Test it with another friend who's a good gamer, uh, who you whose feedback you value, and go back to the drawing board and do it again. And why I say game design is emergent is because you'll find things when playing that you never thought would be uh, issues, that you never thought would be the most fun part of it, that you never thought would be clouded by rules and obfuscated by behavior. And then you'll figure out, what do I need to tease out? What do I need to make shine? And you can't do that if you don't put it on the table, just like you can't find out what people are doing wrong in their learning process without making them show you some work. Well, and from, like you said, your background's in a little bit in behavioral psychology and you can't observe the thinking process. No, it's it's a covert behavior. We can't do that. Um, so lots of students, uh, and I, I think we trick them if we want to talk about behavioral incentivization. We, we tell them in math specifically, we say, hey, show me the work so I can give you part marks. And that's just part of it, really. Um, I'm hoping all the teachers out there know that that's not why we get them to show the work. Yeah. We get them to show the work so we know where to help them if they go wrong. Well, right. it's our only ability to observe the learning is to, is it really the, is yeah, like, really, like really stream is. of consciousness answer. Yeah. And so I do that all the time in instructional design. I design my courses so that because I'm doing whole like 15 week blocks of courses at a time. Yeah. I look at the end. I go, OK, what do I want them to learn? And then I go backwards. How do I get them to learn all those things by by using several different assessment methods um, across here? And if they're doing a big major project, I need to do a check and balance maybe two weeks before the final thing is due, which means I need to start uh, four weeks before that. So I have them do a rough draft. I mark it at two weeks, give them feedback. Then they have a week or two to reiterate, you know, do their own re-implementation and redevelopment of the thing because they should be following this type of process as well. Yeah. You know, they should be following an iterative process as well. Uh, and so for students to do that, we have to do that as well as teachers. We have to allow them that process that it's a duo. Do-overs are okay. Do-overs are fine. And if you think about games, games are literally loops. They are do-over loops. Did I get 12 points last time? No, I only got eight. Mm, I think I, was... I get more the next time. I was waiting for it to come to this because it's it's that's how I learn um, to become a better player at certain games is assess if I just finished this now where where were my failures where were my misunderstandings now let's go back and redo this exam I guess mm-hmm. and it's really interesting uh, in rule design for games you'll often find that people don't put the outcome at the beginning they put it at the end. But the funny thing about designing that things that way and the funny thing about designing courses that way is that if people don't know what their learning outcome is or what the game eventual outcome should be, they actually don't know what to pay attention to Exactly. in the class or in the game. And so good instructional design and good game design both have the quality that, hey, put that up front. Tell the students, tell the players, what are you expected to do and learn in this in this system, because they're just systems. Both of them are just systems. And then how are you going to do that? Yeah. Right? So that's first day syllabus reading for us. It's like, here are the objectives, and then here is how. But then each day we go through that, 
here's today's learning outcomes. By the end of today, these are the things that I hope you will learn. Here's how we're going to teach you, and here's how we're going to assess that learning just in today, right? Yeah. So good instructional design does follow the same loop as good game design, or vice versa. Um, and that develop that loop that we're talking about really is just a behavioral loop. Um, it's input, the behavior, output, the thing that you want. <clears throat> and I mean, if we're going to talk about behavior incentivization, uh, this is where it all comes to the crux. Um, students work for marks and they hopefully get their learning objectives met while getting marks, yeah. right? Games are people work for victory points uh, <laughs> and I hope they have fun or are engaged while they're gaining those victory points. They're just going on a loop cycle. If you really want to boil things down, that is what's happening both in a classroom and at the game table. You are literally in a behavioral loop with an output input method. Uh, it's operant conditioning all the way through in a lot of a lot of ways, right? Put the um, mouse in the maze. Yeah. Um, let's see what else is there. So instructional strategies. Um, I just taught a, a class on Vygotsky yesterday. So, I mean, this kind of fits well into that, like zone of proximal yeah. development and scaffolding and all that kind of stuff. That's what we're talking about in that third stage of development a little bit. Um, and we need to develop that for our game players as well. Um, so one thing we're doing in this one game that I'm working on right now that I can't tell you the name of, uh, because then, you know, some major motion picture studio would come and send an assassin after me or something. <laughs> or here's but, a cease and desist letter before yeah. we're done the podcast. Well, it won't be a cease and desist because they want the game done. <laughs> uh, it's more, hey, you can't talk about that. Yeah. Uh, but in the game, anyways, we teach the players how to play the game in the first little bit of the game, if you get my, my drift. Absolutely. Yeah, we are, absolutely. We're creating a methodology of play uh, through almost a tutorial in not in the rules it's actually as you're playing these things are happening that will teach you oh that's exactly what you want to do and they teach you that through behavioral operant conditioning like mm -hmm. you get a you did something right you get the reward now move on yeah you now know how to do that and the next thing you did this thing right you get this little reward great yeah. now you know how to do that and then that facilitation means i can leave you to play I don't have to hold your hand this whole way through. And really, when you talked about uh, how you view teaching and that you're creating an environment for learning that you facilitate the first couple steps, and then after that, it's up to the student to do some work to learn the rest of it, that's exactly what a classroom should be. Yeah. And exactly what a game should be. They don't want to be, it doesn't need to be on rails and it doesn't need to be handheld through the whole thing. Um, and people should be, allowed to make choices that they want to make allowed to fail yeah. um, at those choices to experiment within this system to see what works what does it what gets them points what doesn't and it's only through good facilitation at the beginning that we can let people do that right yeah absolutely i've my i've always wanted my teaching methodology to be uh, as i said before like a guide on the side and mm -hmm. just, as opposed to the stage, the sage, the sage on the stage, right? Yeah, and and allow them. I mean, watch them, um, you know, go through whatever thinking process. And and there's mo most of the time, I can already predict that they're going to come to a dead end. But I'm thinking they need to 
experience that in order to back up and go, okay, where did, where did we take a left when we should have made a right? Yes. And I will sit back and wait and wait and be as patient as I can. And I think that's a lot of the, from the, from the instructional design is you can't, you can't control the way people interpret your, your lesson plans. So you have to be patient to, to see how, each learning style is going to input or allow that uh, um, lesson to um, uh, use the term MIDI, right? Like yep. a MIDI cable. How is it going to connect? Are all the pins going to connect? Are half the pins going to connect? Mm -hmm. So, and that's to me, that's the, that's where I get antsy because I'm thinking, I want you to get there so I can step in, but then I oh. have to allow you to get there before <laughs> I step in, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the same with a game design where you're testing a game. You just want to be there. But the best test of a game is is literally that blind play test uh, where you get the players to play just from the rules that they've read and all the stuff they can interpret on the board game. And this is where UX and graphic design comes into play. Your game should teach itself. Yes. You aren't in the box, right? And st similarly, your course should be able to have some parts where the students can go do their own learning because as Vygotsky would say, uh, you know, people don't learn well when they're given everything and left to their own devices and people don't learn well when they're taught everything and are, you know, hovered over. So it's that kind of fine line between having that, the, the person who's gone before pull a little and then the class follow a little and explore that proximal difference, that space that is the proximal development zone by themselves with your assistance and you come in and you kind of say, Oh, no, Hey, yeah. where do you think you went wrong there? You know, when you see something going wrong, uh, as opposed to saying, this is what you must do. And this is what you must do. And this is what you must do. Uh, a funny story from today's class, uh, even just on the idea of how your rules and stuff get, um, interpreted incorrectly sometime is I asked my students today to write me a thesis statement, uh, using just a, basically a Mad Lib style thesis development statement of opinion because ABC. Mm -hmm. And then I said after that, and I also want you to uh, submit through your ePortfolio, submit three sources in APA format that you might be using for this paper that you're writing. It's just a 500 word paper persuasive or exposition on uh, a particular area of study. And there's a couple students who go, well, what, how can I cite in my thesis statement? Because they, they just see I need sources and they think they had to do parenthetic citation within the thesis statement. I said, no, 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 no. Where are we going wrong here? Yeah. Uh, and that's another big lesson I learned uh, maybe a couple of years after I started teaching was, oh, it's not all about me. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of this is actually about the students, right? It's all about the students. Don't let me forget yeah. that. It's all about the students. And if you didn't correctly translate information, you done something wrong. But yeah. that's okay because you can you can change that. Don't say, well, don't you understand? Just say, okay, here's how. This is what's supposed to happen. Does that help you? Do you understand yeah. now? Is that okay? Right. Take the time to actually listen to your students and not get mad uh, when they have questions. Like 
that's your job, dude. Like your job <laughs> is to answer these questions, right? But pr pride gets in the way sometimes. It totally does. Yeah. And so one of the life mantras that I've adopted since starting teaching, um, because I, I wasn't a teacher always, I was a clinical uh, therapist before, uh, is um, it's, you know, assume no malice. Now, my students are there for a reason. They want to be there. Um, they might be having a bad day, but it's not about me. And yep. though I pour sweat and blood and tears into my lessons, I literally do. Um, it's still not about me. It's still about them. Yeah. And the same thing with the game design stuff, right? You know, uh, your ego, you got to check it at the door when you're designing a game and be really open to feedback because who knows, they might have just solved the problem. But if you go, no, my design's faultless and perfect and all this oh, yeah. stuff, you're an idiot. You don't, have you ever designed a game? Let me tell you about all the games I've designed. That's why my game is awesome. Uh, you will find yourself, A, without people wanting to play your games because they're they're like, I'm not going to play for that D-bag anymore. Yeah. Uh, and B, you're going to find yourself in a place where you're not able to get what you really need, which is feedback. To develop a good game, you need feedback. A good game cannot be developed in a vacuum. I think you can make a game, but yeah. it's not going to be that good. Or the Here's, chances of it being good are very poor. To to uh, to push this on a tangent, maybe, yeah. um, uh, it just prompted in my head, uh, when, when I had an intern, um, she asked me, what's the most important thing um, involved or connected to teaching? And I, and I just stopped and I, you know, put down all this stuff. I said, the most important thing about teaching has nothing to do with teaching. It is the relationship. Oh yeah. And, and so with that um, perspective, how put those glasses on the game designer is, is that relationship with the player just as important as the relationship established for, with the teacher and a student? Uh, I don't think so necessarily because it's ephemeral uh, yeah. and you're also 99.99999% not at the same table in the same room as people who are playing your games, right? My games are played across the world. Yeah. I'm not in that box with them. I'd love to be. But, but like I, right? like a like a musician. But definitely um, playtesting. And definitely yeah. playtesting. It is about relationships. Okay. And game design as a as a industry is about relationships. Uh, people talk about networking, 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 networking. And I say, no, no, no. Build a relationship. Yeah. Because you will get 10 times further with somebody who likes you versus the person who you just gave your business card to. And people right. can sense that. I mean, oh, yeah. They, yeah. Uh, honesty and integrity and transparency go a long way in uh, not only teaching, but in game design. So in teaching, um, one of the things that I do every, every first class of every class that I've ever taught is I tell them about how I almost failed out of university uh, because I don't want them to be afraid of failure. I want them to see that, hey, even after you fail, you can be pretty successful. Um, and I show them, you know, pictures of my family. I show them game design. I show them stuff I do musically. I show them all this kind of stuff. And it's not to say, hey, you've got a really cool teacher who's awesome. It's to say, look, I literally almost failed out of first year. Like my average was so low that the university said, you, sir, can no longer live in residence, you are kicked out of residence. Uh, and you're about this close to being kicked out of the entire school. So it was a warning sign, you know, shot across the bow, get your act together. Yep. Um, and I think that's okay. It's okay to fail. And 
really, if you think about learning and game design uh, and play, if you think about all those things together, it is all about failing to find the best parts of it. You fail, but in failing, you're like, okay, that's not a good part. That's the thing I don't want to do anymore. <laughs> You've just described part. most of my games because I'll I'll come in last place sometimes, but I will have the best time, the best experience, and and <clears throat> that whole idea of two days later, I'm thinking about that game and mm -hmm. I'm processing and yeah, uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, I often tell students um, that you know you learn more through your failures than you do th through your successes. Uh, and I'm a competitive martial artist, and for a very long time, I never lost. I just couldn't lose. No matter what I did, I wouldn't lose. And so it became very difficult for me to analyze my own uh, progress. And it was only higher belts who could actually tell me what was wrong, but I had to go and be willing to ask them that. Uh, so tell me something. What could I improve? Mm -hmm. you, have, you have to want to do that, though. Um, a lot of times students aren't in that mode yet just because they're just happy to scrape by uh, because it's not just, you know, one thing. They have nine classes or something like that, right? So anyway, um, let's look at this thing again. So implement, try the lesson plan with units of students. Yeah, so implement and evaluate. That is really, and develop. That's really that cycle that I talk about when I talk about iteration. It yeah. is design, test, redesign, and that's it. That's and then, it. and then back to and, the beginning and and, nauseum, put it through the rinse. Nauseum, yeah. Yeah. and in between there, there's you know, add. You're gonna you're you're gonna get feedback from people. So that's that little critical crux. Uh, I'll be talking about it uh, on an online seminar. I think I think I'm talking about that on Saturday. Um, with uh, Board Game Design Lab, so Gabe Barrett, about mm -hmm. play testing itself. So that little itty bitty part of that iterative process, but it is the key critical part. Uh, and that's like the key critical part, key critical part of instructional design, which is teach the actual damn class yeah. to people and then facilitate and be open to their feedback, which so many teachers aren't. And so many students don't think they can give feedback, which is bullcocky. Yeah. Uh, because most most teachers they're thinking about it. That's for they, sure. <laughs> they want that feedback. They just yeah. have to be open to it and be willing to get that. And so, um, you know, I often put little things at the end of my slide presentation or whatever. Like, if you have any questions or concerns about today's class, you know, email me at this. They know they have my email. They have you know my office hours. They have all this stuff. And it's it's not super common that I get feedback um, about specific classes, but sometimes I do, and that's great. Yeah. Um, it's an equal amount of people who give me, oh my god, that was amazing, uh, and that really stunk. <laughs> I didn't learn a thing. What what was what was I supposed to learn today? Um, and it's not always in the same lesson. That's that's a good thing. Because <laughs> yeah. if it was in the same lesson, then I'd be like, I, I don't know what I can do for you. Uh, but usually it's that kind of thing where, oh, I also was having trouble with that. I also didn't know how I was going to teach you that thing. And apparently I didn't do very well. Um, or it might be, I, I actually am super transparent with students. I'll say like, this is the first time I'm trying this uh, particular way of teaching you. So you let me know at the end, did you learn the thing that I'm listing here as the outcome? Right. Yeah. I, I, I hold myself very much beholden to the learning outcomes and things like that in terms of my responsibility 
as a teacher to get that through to the students. You know, did you learn that? Did I do my part? And a lot of times that will get more feedback than just the general, hey. Yeah. Or be specific feedback. and go, what, what learning style did I not spend enough time with? Yeah. Yeah. And um, a lot of the times, I mean, I teach French immersion students and they are typically, you know, the AP advanced students. Mm -hmm. And I'm like you said, I'm uh, when we're doing a project, I will tell them at any stage, if you see a better idea or a better way to get this outcome, then tell me because mm -hmm. I can't think of everything. And yep, these are just the ways I know. Yeah. And I, I even do that on tests. Like I'll say, hey. Um, we're not, I don't take up tests in classrooms, uh, because that just leaves me open to all sorts of debate, uh, which is something I'm not inviting, particularly on a test front, not from a whole class, not 50 against one, right? Yeah. It's just, that's not a fair room to discuss things in. But I say, if you have a question about your test results, set up an appointment. It has to mean something to you. It can't be just, I'm fighting for marks. It's like, I really don't believe that this was fairly done, assessed. Yeah. Um, and then we'll have a talk. And if I agree, I'll change marks for everybody in the class based on your, based on your feedback. So you should do this. And the validity of that feedback too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, well, somebody comes up and they say, Hey, I didn't really get this question. And then I'll just, I, cause I can pull out all, all the stats and I say, Oh, okay. Oh, you know what? 50% of the class really did poorly on this thing. Maybe I'll just wipe that question out. Or. I take the whole question out. And I reword it and the review next it. Yeah, yeah. And oh, yeah, review. for sure. I'd review yeah. it in the class as well. Uh, but I won't do that for the whole test because it's just and with the whole class there at once. And you I'll have a curriculum to get specific through. things. Yes, uh, which is very different than game design. Game design, <laughs> yeah. uh, we don't have a curriculum to get through, but, but we're you also have not publishers. There to, yeah, yeah, we do have we do have uh, time frames. You know, yeah. we do have limitations to what we can do, but we have to. We have to make room for that feedback process in game design. Like, um, it's one of the things that you'll notice over the last couple of years. So when Kickstarter first started, um, I want to say, you know, five years ago, six years ago, when Kickstarter first started, um, and maybe into even the last couple of years, uh, you will see that there are games that have come out which look great, but are horrific because they haven't done their due diligence in the design process. Exactly. So in that design, develop, implement, evaluate, they didn't do it enough. And so you get these half-baked products coming out that didn't have enough development time. Yeah. Uh, and now you'll see that there's a lot more publishers uh, searching for third-party developers because while they might not have the wherewithal to do it themselves or they, they're like a single designer, they're looking for people outside to give them their opinions to get that information. Uh, and the other thing about that that's important is that you have to recognize that if you're playtesting and you playtest with the same group all the time, that is a very small pool of data, right? Yes. And that you need to broaden that just a little bit, get outside that a little bit, uh, have differentiated players, yeah. right? Play styles, different understandings, different play groups, because all those dynamics matter, right? That's that's funny because even just today I had some students working on a project, and um, they asked me, "Well, how how many you know examples or how many you know related events should I put to this?" And I said, "Okay, your phone, your GPS. What's the minimum amount of satellites for that thing to know where you are? 
three. And I'm like, okay, then let's use that metaphor. For me to understand that you know where you are and what you're talking about, how minimum, how many examples do I need? And they, oh, okay, three. And I said, now, if you want to be even more detailed and even more extravagant in, in describing this and, you know, this GPS location, the more satellites you have or the more resources you have, the better I will be able to interpret your understanding of the, and all of a sudden that light bulb just went off and they, and they basically, they just looked at me and went, okay, stop talking now. I, can, I get it. <laughs> I need to. I need to work. I need to find those yeah. five sources for you now, right? Yeah. Exactly. And uh, I think um, you know we have to go through all those steps to make a good instruction uh, set. So let's take a look at these. Um, implement, try out, or plan your unit with the students. Yep, that's great. And then evaluate. Were you successful? Did your students learn? Do they have fun doing it? What you, should you change for the next time? Perfect. That is exactly what we <laughs> do in game design as well. Like, how do you measure success? Well, were they engaged? Uh, that's, you know, did they learn? Did they do the behaviors that you wanted them to do? Uh, and so, <clears throat> again, being a behavioral science kind of person, I look at the behaviors. Did they do? And behaviors are lots of things. They're not just those subtle body language cues. But I'm also talking about in-game behaviors. Like, did they buy the cards that we thought were the most powerful cards? Did they uh, do the actions that we thought people would do and gain the most points? How did they win? What did they do? And you have to track all those behaviors. Um, and then what did we learn by watching them? Oh, well, okay, nobody ever did this action. Okay, then why does it exist? Let's yeah. cut that out, right? Nobody learned this? Okay, well, is it important? If not, cut it out. If it is important, okay, we might need to give some more time to it. Um, what should you change for the next time? Uh, the nice thing about game design is that they're because it's hopefully fun that people will want to play it again and it's like you know 45 minutes to 90 minutes of their life usually it's not this big deal um the bad thing about instructional design is typically you're going to wait for a whole semester before you can implement the change for that specific class but what you can do and what happens often is you learn uh from class one and you have enough time to scramble to put that kind of new methodology into place for class three, if not yeah. class two, right? Depends on your rotation sec your rotation cycle. Like if it's the next day, you might not get there, but <laughs> the next week maybe, right? Yeah. So time doesn't wait for anybody, uh, but uh, you can get that all together. So yes, after going through the five steps of analyze, design, develop, implement, and evaluate, I hereby state that this would be an okay process to follow as a game designer um and why it makes sense is because learning is a game learning should be a game uh if you structured think about play. yeah it's structured play uh if you think about what and that's that's obviously at the um pinnacle uh i can't say i'm actually ever there a lot to be honest there's there's not a lot uh of structured play time that happens in the college classroom because the stakes for some reason seem higher. Um, and so A, a lot of times if we did that, um, the college would look at that and go, what are you doing? Sometimes the students might not even value it because it seems like it's almost stealth learning, right? Yeah. But I still try to put playfulness into the classes and into the learning styles. Um, and I allow people to do wide and varied things in their presentations. Uh, and some of them involve games and some of them involve you know, fun things, theatrics, and that's a good thing that those are the memorable things, mm -hmm. right? Um, what else? 
is there in this? Yeah, I think this is a, a really good process for both. Oh, but what, was, what I was saying about uh, learning is really just, um, and games are really just these loops of behavior that we do. And it's the same idea that we're trying to do a behavior and get a reward. Do a behavior, get a reward. Do a behavior, get a reward. And you can see where my, my psychological bent is as well. well Offering conditioning and whatnot. Yeah. But that's how we learn. Uh, and that's actually how we play as well. Uh, play isn't, isn't uh, functionless. And it, it would be a very big misguided notion to think that play isn't guided. Uh, or play doesn't have a or guide. Purposeless. Yeah, or, or yeah, that play has a purpose. It always, always has a purpose. Whether you think it does or not, that's yeah. that's your fault, <laughs> really. Um, but play always has a purpose, and we can use that. We can we can tap into the innate desire for people to play when we make courses, uh, and then that should be actually the express goal when you're making a game, of course. But this process that uh, we've looked at today. Um, the Addy process, I think it could be design of games as well. So yeah, I, I don't think it's wrong. Uh, I think it the Venn diagram is quite uh, an overlap. And the more you reflect on it, the more you'll you'll hopefully see that. Oh yeah, it's very very similar, very similar. Well, I think uh, I think we've got this process uh, identified and as you said we've put the stamp of approval on it i'm very ex i'm very excited to get to the the next phase because it's sure. always, yeah it's always one something i wanted to do because i'm such a huge fan uh, when I was, you know, younger, uh, uh, the, inside the actor studio and the Pivo questionnaire, mm -hmm. so I've modified it to uh, to work with with uh, our topic, and uh, I'm just gonna give them to you, and uh, we'll do short answers, and uh, let's see how surprised you can be by um, <laughs> uh, some stream of con consciousness uh, responses here. So, question number one: What is your favorite game mechanism? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, my favorite game mechanism would probably be. Oh, <laughs> don't think too much. Well, I'm just I'm going to say that it's probably not necessarily a mechanism, but it's part of a mechanism or so, system. Yeah, I like games where it's actually smaller than that. <laughs> I like I like games where you have a pivot. Okay. Um, oh, this is amazing. Okay, so you're a fellow Canadian, so I you will understand when I say I like games where there's a TSN turning point. Absolutely, I right? totally understand that one. So I designed... like the Rough Riders having one too many players on the field. Right. Uh, I I live for those moments in games where you have to make that critical decision that will affect the rest of the game. As now, I'm going to turn my strategy towards this high stakes, high reward. Yep. So I like that. I like that right. kind of stuff. Number two, what is your least favorite game mechanism? Oh, um, anything where people aren't playing. <laughs> so if you make a game where a person's options on a turn are to pass or do nothing, uh, like passing is basically doing nothing. That's not an option. Don't make that an option. Um, or waiting or anything like that. Um, not making decisions. That that Any game that has these things where you're 
really not making decisions. Let's, let's I agree wholeheartedly. My ADD brain goes off the rails. Yeah, let's get rid of that kind of stuff. <laughs> now, um, that doesn't mean that there aren't good games that have things like player elimination or games where you have to sit and think. That's okay. Yeah. I'm saying, is it useful time off? Um, and just passing because you have no better options. Well, that's just bad game design. The game designer should give you better options. <laughs> All right. right. Number three, what engages you as a designer? Uh, more and more, it's story. Story engages me as a designer. I want to tell good stories through the games. Uh, I don't necessarily want the players to have to tell good stories, but I do like that as well as a, as a theatrical person myself. Uh, I enjoy it when people are telling stories, um, but I want the games to be uh, an arc, have a narrative arc to them where you're not just rinse, wash, and repeat the same thing over and over. Okay. Number four, what turns you off about game design or the gaming hobby? Um, not the game design part, because that that is my savior. That's my psychological refuge, is getting ideas out of my head. Um, but what turns me off about the hobby is, uh, as of late, um, just bringing some things to light in terms of you know, sexual harassment and that kind of stuff, that there's still a long way to go for our hobby to be, you know, inclusive. Mm -hmm. um, and to those people who say, well, you're not being very inclusive of people with other ideas. Well, if their ideas have anything to do with hatred of other people based on race, color, sexual orientation, gender, yeah. uh, they, they can go somewhere else. Yeah, that, that's fine. I can be intolerant of them. I'm okay with that. Okay. I, yeah, I, I quite agree. All right. So number five, it, now number five is the question that I don't think we, I have to change because uh, in the PIVO questionnaire is what is your favorite curse word? So I'm going to change <laughs> that to what is your favorite take that mechanism? Because that provokes curse words. Mm, okay, good. Um, that's an interesting, interesting thing. Uh, so or, or are you appreciative of the take oh, that mechanism? Oh, I, 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 like, I like a good take that game. I like a good game where you can get it up in somebody's grill. Um, I actually, like we, Jesse and I particularly, and one other guy that I co-designed with, we actually pretty much specialize in two-player combat games. That's what we've ended up making a whole lot of. <laughs> um, and so they're definitely confrontational in your face, doing damage to each other. Uh, but... I, I'll have to say my favorite thing. So if you understand magic, I am a blue player. Uh, my goal is to make you play the way I want you to play and dominate um, by disallowing you to do the things that you want to do and forcing you to do the things that I want to do. So my favorite take that mechanics would be uh, control. I like controlling other people. Do you, uh, for a second there, I just had flashbacks of passive aggressive behavior from my parents. <laughs> well, no, I'm pretty darn aggressive when it's that. <laughs> All right. Number six. I, I, I had so much fun kind of manipulating this one. What sound or noise related to board gaming do you like? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> the sound that is my absolute favorite sound in board gaming is the clip on the packages in Sheriff of Nottingham. I have not played that, so I'm not familiar. 
Okay, so let me explain. In Sheriff of Nottingham, you have these little packages. And yeah. they have these little cam clip style things. They're just little plastic clips that when you close the bag, game on. Okay. Like, what the, do you know? Do you understand the premise? Absolutely. Of I, I, now right. I've, seen, I've seen the game played, right. and, and now so, I know exactly what you're right. talking so about. So in Sheriff of Nottingham, you don't start telling people anything about what's in the package or trying to pass them to the sheriff until the clip is closed. And the clip has this amazing auditory and tactile feel um, to it that when it clips and you press it down, your brain automatically switches into, I'm going to lie my face off mode or I'm going to tell the truth with, but assume that I'm lying, right? That kind of thing. You had mentioned that you had a, a background in drama and right away I thought that's the sound of a clapperboard. Yeah. Yeah. Action, right? Yeah, Ab action. yeah absolutely. Yeah. And so that to me is an amazing sound. Uh, another sound that I love uh, is Liar's Dice uh, because 30 dice in six dice cups being rolled simultaneously and slammed on the table is amazing because as you know as soon as that sound stops, the lying starts. <laughs> right? All right. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Apparently, I like lying a lot. Wow. You know, I, I actually really do. I, I I think, and we haven't really made a really good bluffing game. I don't think so. That that's a that's a a goal. There you go. Twenty nineteen hey. goal: a bluffing game. Number seven. What yes. sound or noise related to board gaming do you dislike? Oh, <laughs> uh, what's uh, uh, whatever sound your phone is making. <laughs> And I and I will be completely honest that I am a huge phone user while gaming, um, so I am guilty of that as well. So I I will stop doing that if you stop doing that. Okay. Uh, number eight. What game would you like to play? Like right now? Absolutely. Rock paper scissors. Ready? Rock paper scissors. Shoot. What'd you put? I can't see your hand. Oh, we both scissored. Uh, we'll have to do it again. Ready? Rock. Paper, scissors, shoot. Ah, we both did paper. <laughs> uh, okay, this is going to go on forever. Ready? Okay. Rock. No, one. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Scissors again? Scissors yeah. again? What are you doing? It's like we're in each other's head. Okay. I think, let's... I think we read the same paper. I think we're going to have to go on. All right. Uh, next, number nine. What game would you not like to play? Oh, um... Hmm, what game would I not like to play? Um, I would not like to play <coughs> the game uh, where winning and losing can be determined in the first turn. And there are, are actually quite a few of those games. Uh, uh, I think it's you... splatter games right, right there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Or the way I play them, at least. Well, yeah, so splatter games, uh, if everybody at the table is equal in or relatively equal in terms of knowledge of the game and understanding of the system, that's not going to happen by design. But and that's also that's a player side thing. But there are games that by design you can lose in the first turn and then just have to play the rest of it, or exactly. you can lose in the first turn by player elimination, uh, or everybody can gang up on you. So those are the types of games I don't really enjoy playing. I also don't enjoy playing games that have lots of fiddly procedural bits uh by that i mean upkeep mm -hmm. like okay before and at the end of the round everybody does x y z oh and abc oh and one one two three and, and if you now, miss one of those steps the game's ruined yes and now we can start playing yeah. oh on that note uh i also don't like passive abilities so remembering that oh ah crap i have a sword 
you know, that allows me to roll an extra die. And I'm going to do that right now. So let's roll back your last turn. Okay? No? Not okay? <laughs> no yeah, more so I don't like passive abilities because they can be forgotten. Yeah. So I like anything that says, you know, like if it's the same sword, the same exact sword can be redesigned to say, uh, you get, you know, flip this card over to gain plus one die. Right? And then at the end of the round, everybody just procedurally, I know I said I don't like procedurally, but whatever. <laughs> just, but if everybody's just flipping their used cards over back to the face-up side, great, we're done. Yeah. Right? So there's ways to do that kind of stuff. All right, number 10. The PIVO number 10 question is is very uh, heavy as far as uh, the you know philosophical perspectives. That's the one, if heaven exists, what would you like? But I changed it too because I thought it's that whole glory moment. So if money and resources were not a problem, what game would you like to design? Oh, so um, I'm a huge nerd. And what I do when I play games when I was younger... I would um, be playing, say, Warhammer, but I'd also simultaneously be playing a game of um, the Horus Heresy or Battle for Armageddon uh, at the same time, which represented all of the battles that we were having. So we would move on this kind of small, like um, macro scale, grand strategy board. Like, my army's moving here, my army's moving here. Oh, we just can we just fought each other oh let's go play that on the big table over there with our actual miniatures right that's the kind of game that i would love to see and that has a narrative arc that has progression so your characters gain and lose skills based on the battle outcomes uh, and then those individual miniatures change a little bit that's what i'd love to see <laughs> that's great i, I you know what i want you to make that game yeah i do <laughs> well this this is a fine way to wrap it up because um uh You've pretty much, I have so much to go research now and go investigate that um, I think I created more homework for myself, but that's, that's okay. okay. I like good homework. Yeah. Um, well, that being said, um, give us a, give us a plug. You had mentioned before um, other podcasts that you. Uh, oh yeah, sure. In and... So I will, I'm the host or co-host of Meeple Syrup. Um, it is a show about discussing design with designers um usually it's other designers as of late we've had all sorts of people on there we've had uh convention runners we've had people who uh focus on very specific parts of design uh but it's myself uh jesse wright who is a phd postdoc at stanford in the philosophy of neuroscience very strange mm. field and then erica uh hayes Biaris, who is a elementary school teacher in Toronto, who is also a game designer. Uh, and so you should have her on sometime if you want to talk. Absolutely. And games in the classroom. Um, and so we three meet every Wednesday at nine o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And it's a Facebook live show. So um, if you want to follow us on Facebook at Meeple Syrup Show, you'll get a message on your Facebook that says, hey, we're going live. And that is our show on Wednesday. And we do other stuff on that channel every so often live during the week. And we have uh, on that Facebook page, we have like design questions that we ask people and pro tips that we give people. So it's a, it's a good little community of, you know, about 750 people. It's not a huge thing, but it's a nice little community where you can feel safe to ask your questions and get them answered by 
some people who know a thing or two about game design, and that's good. Um, other things, um, I guess, look out for the upcoming games on Kickstarter, which will be uh, the reprint of Belfort, so the 10th anniversary edition of Belfort, which all with all sorts of interesting new stuff in there, actually. And then the Kickstarter at the end of October for Mutants, which is a deck-building arena combat game that I did with Jesse Wright. Okay. So, yeah, there you go. That's fantastic. Well, I'm going to uh, say thank you very much. And uh, I'm, I, w I, I was so uh, enthralled during uh, the moments where, where you were going through the design process that, that uh, anybody who knew me would have probably been impressed because I would have wanted to jump into the conversation. It was just, <laughs> just sit back and listen, just soak it up. So yes, once again, thank you very much. Um, I, I am so happy that we had this opportunity and I hope that uh, the listeners out there can uh, take uh, whatever they can from this conversation. Like you said, as teachers, we don't know how you learn or what you learn, but just that you learned something. Mm -hmm. And again, if you want to reach out to me personally, um, my Twitter is at senfonglim, S-E-N-F-O-O-N-G-L-I-M. And I am more than happy to talk shop, whether it's game design, instructional design, psychology, uh, therapy, whatever. We, we can do it all. We can talk all about that kind of stuff. So Excellent. contact me. Well, thank you, everybody. And that was episode two. Catch you later. We are Bridge City Board Gamers, and you can find us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter at BC Board Gamers. Our Facebook page is Saskatoon Tabletop Games Community. And on Board Game Geek, Guild number 3039.